Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Cookie Jar Golf Podcast. Sam here, just a real quick cover note on this podcast. We sat down with Colin Sheehan a while back. Colin's been someone we've been really looking forward to getting onto the onto the podcast for some time. He is a fascinating character. Uh, Colin's just finished 15 years as the head coach of the Yale Bulldogs. Uh, he, he's been involved you know, in Yale right through his collegiate days. He's hugely respected in his field. He is, however, also deeply involved in golf developments. He was a driving force behind a Hoopy Match Club. He's got a number of other projects on the go at the moment. He's been involved in the restoration of Yale. He's one of the largest, he has one of the largest collections, rather, of vintage postcards of American clubhouses. He's into match play golf. He's into British golf club culture. He's hugely invested in golf course architecture he's an all-round fascinating character the similar signal on the podcast is a little bit sketchy uh it's probably a little bit worse at the start of the pod but it kind of gets into it um so i would just stick with it it's a superb episode what colin says more than makes up for any lack in audio quality you can trust us on that and without further ado it's over to the podcast Enough about me anyway. How are things with you? Uh, great. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, I love what you guys are doing. Very, uh, I love the enthusiasm. So delighted to be on. I'm a, I'm on, uh, I'm all I've ever, I came on a trip to the UK, the Yale golf team in March of 1996. And we flew overnight, piled into a van. Our coach drove like, Mario Andretti down to Sandwich. <laughs> we never even we didn't even get out. He he. We pulled into the parking lot. He got out. He br- he briefly chatted with what we later you know found out was secretary, but two old guys in tweed jackets and and then he we continued. We motored in the in the little uh, the coach out to the tenth tee, and we played. We we went out in singles off the back. Uh, without a meal, just straight there, and it was love at first sight. Temple is one of my favorite holes on Lynx Golf, and uh, the very next day was a was a proper thirty six hole match against Royal Singports with you know morning foursomes, afternoon foursomes, big lunch, toast to the queen, and after two days, I was it was uh, you know. It was just incredible uh, love and admiration, and just you know, I've you know, I've never stopped wanting to, to to enjoy that that feeling of those first two days of golf in the UK. Everything about it, and all I've ever wanted to do is is just nudge uh, American golf along to be more like the Brits. You know, that's just how it goes. Yeah. I, I I sometimes the way the way all the sort of skinny English kids in the sixties loved American R and B and blues, and they. You know, and Keith Richards and and Mick Jagger, they couldn't they couldn't get enough of chess records, and and I feel like there's something about uh, you know falling in love with the culture of of the uh, across the pond. One, you know, it's it's mutual admiration that goes back and forth, and so I, I feel that way about British golf. There's not a single thing about it that 
you shouldn't try to emulate and it wouldn't in, in one in, in one way or another wouldn't make american golf better wow wow well that's a hot start to this podcast Colin, <laughs> because you know to a primarily british club audience they're going to love hearing that particularly with a, from a man of uh such distinction in the game over in america as well i mean you are it's quite hard to summarize what your what your role is in golf obviously you've been a hugely successful team coach at yale which has just come to an end i believe was it 15 years or so but you just seem like an all-round golf guy i think even with the yale stuff there's loads of other projects going on you talked there about being on site castle stewart there's developments there's the outpost club you're a obsessive sort of historian of golf club houses in America, from what I understand from the little bit, I, you, you're just a, a complete golf nut, right? Well, um, OCD can be a weapon. <laughs> I was recently, I just sent to, uh, Robert at RSG. I, you know, last month, a few weeks ago was the 100th anniversary of the second Walker cup. First in the UK is it, you know, May 18th to 19th. St. Andrews, uh, USA team, uh, luckily backdoor to win on, on day two. But, uh, you know, I, I spent half a day putting together a huge slideshow of this because, uh, three of the 10 members of the U S team were from Yale. Um, I recently convinced, uh, the USGA to let us, to let Yale buy replicas of the original Havermeyer trophy and, and, and the Walker cup to, uh, to acknowledge the sort of contributions of uh, Yale golfers a hundred years ago, but um, to answer your question, I I I am a dyed in the wool golfer, just like like many of us, uh, like you. Um, uh, I fell in love with the game as a as a as a ten year old at a diving nine hole public course in in Fairfield, Connecticut. Um, was lucky to work in the bag rooms and, and caddy at various private clubs in Fairfield where came with Monday privileges, um, which I couldn't believe. Um, and it helped. And then it led, it led to a chance encounter with David Patterson, uh, a Paisley native born in the late thirties who, um, grew up on sugar rations and post-war Britain and was eventually a club professional and, and a professional competed in the 1960 Open Championship. True, no way. Led to me getting recruited by him, and in, um, in 1993, it sort of changed. Did change my life. He he was the former pro at the Country Club of Fairfield, where I was working, and I'm, I and I was a senior in high school, and I would I would work, um, you know, I'd work Fridays from three to six, and as soon as the shift was over, I'd try to play 18 holes after sunset and. One day, when it rained, they just sort of on the day of, they just told me I didn't. They didn't need me. They, they didn't need to. Have, they weren't letting out carts, and uh, so I would always go out and play in the rain. Um, I was always inspired by that story of Tom Watson as a kid. Always, whenever the weather was bad, he would always use the opportunity to play. I, I love yeah. playing in, in shite weather, and <laughs> and there was this kind of guy shows up, Dave Patterson, and uh, whatever reason, on a fall Friday he was he too came to play in the rain and and he started asking me questions about um you know you know sort of explaining him i was a senior and i was 
player then. I was playing well with them and I was interested in playing in college and I had my sights set on like a school like Rice in Texas or William and Mary and somewhere in the Sun Belt. And by the fifth or sixth hole, he eventually says, you know, I'm coach of the Yale golf team. I'd like to send you an application. And New Haven is only 30 minutes from where I grew up. And in 1992, it had a reputation was, you know, it was, it was kind of notorious for being a city that was down on its luck. It was a little dodgy. Mm -hmm. Um, it was, I, I had no, and I didn't really have, it didn't even dawn on me about going there, but I went on a visit that winter and fell in love with it at the team and spent sort of a night or two on campus. And you know, it was the dead of winter and co the old coach took me on a tour of the golf course that was covered in a foot and a half of snow. He drove me around the service paths, but he was amazing tonight. And, uh, I'm eternally grateful to him sort of, he always took advantage of the instability rules that allowed you to do an overseas tour, every, a quadrennial overseas tour. Um, every four years, Yale, Yale still to this day has a has a spring break, spring recess of two weeks. And it's fascinating to me that he would take the team on a fortnight to the UK, a week in England in March, and a week in Scotland. And I know an American think it's complete daft that you would go over there we were there that time of year, and yet that's the thick of the sort of college university golf season, which mm -hmm. to me is fascinating. That it's like the winter term is the sort of it's the golf season. Yeah, it's James, the, the varsity side they yeah, play yeah. their matches pretty much exclusively in the winter, really, and then it all right. builds towards that that big fixture, really, in in April or whatever. Yeah, or late March, right? Yeah, it's fine to me. It's all based off feel cricket calendar i guess or the, yeah. but um the that trip was like a revelation uh playing cambridge in an all-day morning and afternoon foursomes matches of royal warlington four trips around warlington in one day and uh in freezing cold weather and in the camaraderie and the social element of it um match play sort of only we couldn't play a, a more different format, unfortunately. A, a, I understand it's what you need to do to have 15 feet against each other in a tournament um, over the course of two days and 54 holes. But, um, you know, it's thoroughly, it's thoroughly boring to, to sort of be grinding out a metal score for days on end when so much rather just be playing head-to-head -head matches and having them, you know, there's no substitute for that. So that trip changed my life. And I, 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 I was already a serious, I was already a passionate golfer. I'd already, I've always loved history. Um, I was a voracious reader of golf literature. Um, and by the time I graduated Yale, when all everybody else was generally going to follow sort of path to wall street or law school, I, I, one way or the other, I, I knew I was going to, uh, I had my sight set on sort of pursuing golf, golf architecture, restoration work where, where I did their zoo and fell in my lap to become a, a magazine editor in New York City out of college. Um, small magazine, small sort of high end lifestyle magazine called the, you know, the golfer. Um, and I enjoyed it. I enjoyed traveling and writing and, and 
uh, nothing like the freedom you have those first sort of years you have of college, yeah. sort of attached living by living sort of rent shack to rent shack, and you know, a sort of always jokingly refer to it as a poverty jet set lifestyle. <laughs> but but yes. So, but that, and it led to me eventually getting in touch with Mark Parson and, um, I, it, in 98, 99, 2000, I saw a lot of new courses, part of the working at the magazine. And a lot of them were real estate projects. A lot of them were, were uninspiring. Um, they, and then to me, the course that, you know, but, but it was exciting to see things like Bannon Dunes happening it was definitely, um, there was something building there with, with these really terrific courses were starting to come online. Um, they were still the exception. And I, I always love telling the story is, is when I finally came around to seeing Kings Barnes in, in July of 2000, brand new it basically came online during the open championship and it was clearly one of the best new modern courses that anyone had built but i was equally if if not more so impressed by the clubhouse the restraint of the clubhouse the course that good to have a clubhouse that modest so small to me, to me was fascinating i th and that led me to want to find mark parson i i was like I tracked him down and it took a while and he was in Cabo San Lucas on the, you know, on the end of the Baja Peninsula. And we became very good friends and we had countless phone calls and spent those you know, sort of hundreds of hours talking to him about golf and golf development. And all I wanted to do was be involved in his next project. And that's when it, sort of 2003 and he kept telling, you know, he was, he was planning capsule Stewart, and then even though the entitlements process took a while and um he was i was living in new york this whole time and um he and his wife Dee, Dee and they kind of they got an apartment on the upper west side and he lived around the corner and we became became very close friends and um so he was a mentor to me and i i loved moving eventually moved to i moved to dal cross to castle Stewart and summer of 06 and was there for till till through thanksgiving and then spent um several months there in 07 and i just loved it i love and we you know he was getting approached by all sorts of people to do projects they were looking at places like estonia and maui and Ed's mm. uh, and around sunningdale and there was starting to be a groundswell of, of options for him and i was scouting up possible development projects for him and it all came to a crashing halt around 2008 with this sort of uh sure. global recession and uh in some ways i i recently was telling someone that i went from went from having 10 leads and all sorts of sort of sort of our pick of the of potential projects to sort of none at all and in many ways uh it was a lifeline to get to sort of circle back with coach Patterson be his assistant in 07 and 08 and then take over in the summer of of 08 as the head coach it was almost like a lifeline at the time if I was going to stay in, involved in golf like um I was a 
I was a serviceable freelance golf writer, but I was known a was not gonna make a not gonna not gonna make a living. And I also was watching golf publishing kind of you know kind of greater as publishing at large was magazines for certainly were struggling and contracting. So the coaching job was something that was incredible. I, so I just wrapped up just two days ago. I turned in my laptop and wow. ID card and, and my uh, and my key. <laughs> and that must uh, have been sad. That must have been sad, Daisy. Fifteen years or so you've been coaching yeah. Yale. Like that's you know, and I, it was, I it was fascinating. Uh, you know, it was a, the best part of that job was, was like a narcotic job. I would do. It never felt like it. It never felt like work to me. It was your being the temporary steward of your of your old of your alma mater's your own your old program uh the relationships with the kids is priceless all i was trying to do was just create for them what what the old coach did for us which was to have the team be a critical you know just be just be you know a joyful part of of a larger undergraduate experience um in a historic program at that with the with the number one college course the you know it, it it's i guess it was coincidence or just ha- i would have loved being the coach of that program regardless of its pedigree but it but it also was the it also was the sort of the first program it was the one that won all these national championships mm. it's it the one that had these amateur and amateur champions and finalists and walker cuppers that just appealed to me and uh and and so my background is not with instruction um i turned out to be a good recruiter <laughs> yeah. um but i i loved it it it, it uh it, it enriched me it, it brought me so much joy um i i loved uh you know there's there's a happiness professor here at yale she's kind of famous on this little same Oh, this is called a psych and that twelve hundred Yale student and her the takeaway from her all her, her lectures is that people are happiest when they do things for other yeah. So it made me happy to be the to be their concierge and arrange golf for them. And you know, there's there's not a single course in America or the world for that matter that we sort of yell golf can't get on. And one of the things I really enjoyed was giving me the kids had their sort of golf instruction figured out. They came to me with you know ten thousand hours of practicing and playing, countless, countless lessons, time with coach. And I enjoyed, I enjoyed those other elements of the golfing education. You know, to play for me, you're going to play, you're going to, you're going to, you're going to play a rather robust list of of notable courses, and you're going to get an education in golf architecture. And I truly love debating courses with them. Um, I love taking them somewhere famous and trying to nitpick them and debate the weakest hole on the property and the best hole and compare courses to another. And I generally try to convince them that the older courses are better. <laughs> but, you know, um, you put your own bias onto them. That's what you mean. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I so yeah, exactly. Right. I mean, that's I, 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 I'm going to challenge them, and and that and that part is that part's tremendously fun. And, and 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 that's what the team. I remember very clearly when the old coach arranged for 
for us to play the country club at Brookline, our sophomore year, the day before the Harvard Yale game, we went up in November. We went up on a Friday, like November 20th and played the country club in, in sort of misty, cold rain. And it was the first time I ever played a course that had hosted a major. And, uh, that was something I'll never forget. Just the first time being at a historic, truly historic club and wandering in the locker room and, and those are the uh those are the spoils that you get for coming to to live in new haven and and, and yeah, play in the play in the northeast and and have uh have a long dreary winter you know that's the these are the, the these are the types of these are the things i used to induce them to come play for me and 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 they love it and they and and that's uh one of the elements so i um I looked after the kids like they were my own sons. You know, I, um, I, it, again, you know, I, I have three daughters and people are always asking me like, don't you wish you had any sons? And I'm like, are you kidding me? I, every year or I have between eight and 10 knucklehead college age boys. And I get older and they stay the same age. <laughs> <laughs> But it keeps you young, I bet, as well. I mean, there's quite a few themes that sort of collide in there. I mean, there's obviously the whole sort of legacy history piece within the game. There's the architecture stuff. But, you know, I want to, you know, just sort of hang on the hang on the Yale stuff a bit longer. I feel like being a coach at a collegiate team, it's the only real profession of being a team coach of any golf side, right? Because, you know, it's the only way it... it it exists in that form where it requires a coach. And you talked about your time there in George's in 92 and 36 hole matches. And, you know, I play in a foursomes um, side. It's a separate society. We play a lot of 36 hole matches. You know, you meet in the morning, 18 different pair in the afternoon, you know, you hammer it out and there's something so pure about that match play format. How much of that is a draw to you that what you kind of wanted to, continually be around that because i just think it's such a unique aspect of golf when you're playing matches just that whole concept of team matches it's so addictive whether it be the walker cup or the Ryder cup or yale taking on the side or whatever it looks like i just feel like there's a real addiction for me there is that is that something you felt is that something that kind of just kind of gave you that energy for the for the job do you think truly uh, you know it's an individual sport and unless you right unless you make a Unless you play in the Halford Hewitt or a Walker Cup or a you know a Ryder Cup, you don't you don't get many opportunities to be on a team, mm. or at least in the U.S. There's more opportunities in the U.K. But um, what is amazing is when you to sacrifice on behalf of your teammates. That to me, that's what you know. That's the varsity experience as a golfer is to be disciplined during the week and to, to sort of make good choices to be conscientious in your practice throughout the week um to be uh to be getting enough rest to sort of to maybe not attend uh, a soiree on a on a wednesday night or a thursday night to to be to be prepared when we leave on a friday to go down for example to the princeton invitational at springdale to be to have the team to have the five players be prepared so that that weekend they can play to their ability and execute down the stretch. And one thing to play well, for example, as an individual in the summer, 
to play and do well in some tournament. You're happy for you're happy. Your parents, your friends are happy. But when you're the one who kicks in the winning score and helps drag the team across the finish line, there's nothing more. Gra- I mean, that's five times more gratifying. Yeah. And uh, and 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 so that is priceless. You know, everyone making good choices for each other. They're you know they're dedicated to their craft. They're proud. They want you know being in the just to crack the starting five is is its own challenge when there's sort of eight or nine on the side and and they're all equal. You know, there's sort of I tell the kids all the time I only recruit one kind of player and that's starter. Unfortunately, there's you know there's eight or nine of them or ten of them and there's only five spots. So there's already a just to crack the five is its own uh, competition. And then in some ways it's easier to go compete against Harvard and Princeton and than it is against your teammates, but I admire I admire their conscientiousness. The team they've all wanted to be in the lineup. Uh, I never had to motivate them. Um, you know, they know their scores are being seen on golf stat. Everyone knows if they're in the lineup or not. Um, and just again, it goes back to you know dedication to their craft, um, the joy of rep- playing for your school. And there's something very there's something very positive about golf in the in the Ivy League or athletics in the Ivy League really are you know amateur amateur athletics at its best in the United States when the rest of Division One sports are have becoming very commercialized you know there's almost a, an element of corruption to the you know to the to the to the big major sports with TV deals and college football, mm. you know, American football coaches making ten million dollars a year and the athletes don't get anything. There's been a little more um justice for them recently, but what I love is this is, you know, the Yale golfers and Ivy League golf is not going to make it on Sports Center. The highlights are they're not going to get covered. There's other than the occasional parents or uh, friends and girlfriends coming out to watch them it's it's largely it's largely you know it's it's not exactly the most spectated it's not exactly no, it's intrinsic but it means they're playing for the right reasons right and so yet, then it becomes and, a yeah right and yet they play their hearts out they put it all in the line you know week leading up to the ivies is is to them it's a major championship they're all in and they're practicing around the clock and they're, and they're getting in their work when they can and yet all that time, the reason I never, it was always, I always loved being in the business of trying to recruit a kid to Yale and convince them to get a, get an Ivy League education and, and, and where academics are the top priority, uh, and athletics are a close second, but there's no confusing the two. And, and in that regard, that's, 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 that's what amateur varsity athletics was a hundred years ago, and that's what it. And that's where it is here in the Ivy League, and that's sort of that's where it's going to remain. Um, there's there's something very pure about that. Um, hmm. Now they're going to go on. They're going to they're all going to go professional. They're just going to go on to Wall Street or, like I said, law school or med school. Um, occasionally, someone's good enough to try to play professional. James Nicholas is making a good a good go at it. But you know they, they, they just they love to compete. They love to play golf. They love this. They love this beautiful game and and to play in a team format. And then and you kind of 
realize that sort of the window closes. He only gets one thing that the graduating seniors say every year at the bank, the general theme, we all kind of know it already, is how quickly it goes. It's <clears throat> not take it for granted. And you, you start to see it happening, you know, by, by your senior year, you're like, oh, wait, this is, uh, this spree is not going to continue forever. <laughs> uh, I'm, when you're on your last spring break, you realize that, you know, it's going to be, you're not going to spend two weeks every March uh, leaving a trail of dead of, of uh, epic golf courses somewhere. <laughs> you might, unless it's like you guys, unless it's... Yeah, unless you can make a living. Unless you can Don't figure out a way what it looks like on the surface. I can assure yeah. you it's not all, it's not no, all rainbows. I'm with you, man. You got to... How do you get there? You gotta, you gotta be willing to, uh, you gotta hustle. You, know, you gotta, you gotta mm. be willing to make some sacrifices for a while. Yeah, for but, sure. So, so that's really what's fun about it is you recruit kids when they're sixteen, or you start to talk to them and engage with them. They're high achieving. They they show up as, as freshmen, wet behind the ears. You watch them go through this arc between from eighteen to twenty two. See them grow as a person. Um see them develop see their you see their effort their see these achieve milestones um see them have success and agony uh on on the on the team uh and then they graduate and then i love you know then they start just like just like children i mean they eventually excuse me eventually get invited to their weddings and then they start to have children and you're like, Oh my God, what a, what a fantastic opportunity to sort of just be one element of, of their development and, and be part of their lives and that of their families. Terrific. Yeah. You stay close to them, don't you? Like post-graduation, I think I saw something on there from the Harvard Yale golfing society, you know, congratulating you and applauding you for all the good work and everything. And it talks in there a lot about, you know, the connection you maintain with the students and stuff afterwards. And, you know, that again, that being that sense of continuity and that relationship, because you're with them for a long time and you forge in, you know, you know, kind of priceless memories together. You just naturally become really important parts of each other's life. I'm really curious. Do you, do you see a really big difference? You know, 15 years is a, is a long time generational, you know, sort of differences, have you noticed a massive difference, be it in the mindset, the, the the attitude of the players that come through year on year? I suppose every year it becomes difficult to sort of notice the pattern, but I would imagine if you looked back in 2009, 2008 players versus the guys that are coming in wet behind the ears last year, there must be a marked difference just in their overall approach. You know, I, I always feel like kids these days are way more mature than I am even today. Now, maybe that's because I'm massively immature and I'm, you know, or actually kids are just getting a lot more mature and whether that's because of social media or whatever, but they all just seem to approach the game differently as well. They're much more um, dialed, I guess, would be the sort of observation I would have. You've, you've, you've hit the nail on the head. The, I mean, the, um, the data and information like they're they're trail they're tracking Rory's workouts on Instagram. They they, I, they don't have to be introduced to the decade sort of strategies of 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 club selection and and um they have perfect fitting. They're disciplined in their eating. Um, we they're much smarter about 
reading the wind and shaping it. Um, they're just coming in with, there's just, I, I have to say the, the 15 year trend has been just a, a trickle down of the sort of the scientific elements of the game. Um, the, the physical and mental preparedness, um, they, all have spent time they all know their track man data their 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 um you know their g4 their quad sort of numbers they know how to fix issues when the ball's spinning too much they they're it's fascinating it's it, it's just like mini tour pros you know anything mm -hmm. you can do to shave a stroke here and there and mark decision making and um i love one thing i love doing with them thing I do well was sort of doing diagnostics of golf courses after the practice round. Loved sort of debating where a hole went from one tee or under certain wind, the situational kind of choices you make off the tee, driver. I I try to, you know, they used to always proceed by instinct to just pull driver everywhere and take, you know, they took like a split second to, to scrutinize the hole and they've gotten much better at, at making, um, you know, hedging, they know, knowing knowing when the opportunities are to strike, to lay back. Um, to me, that's fascinating. You think about it. Uh, you're contributing a score. It has to be the, the kids can't. You know, they want when they go out to play. They'll take their time on short putts. The score they're going to submit has to be the highest it could have been. Right, no higher than X. And yeah. and if a player's smart decision making can save himself a stroke and nine for a fifty four hole tournament, they've saved themselves potentially six strokes by just you know smart rational decision making. And each player, each submitting score does that. That's twenty four strokes. You can go from the difference could be losing a tournament by one or a or a twenty three shot route just by. <laughs> yeah. Uh, just by sort of better leaves and, you know, um, not taking any reckless decision-making. So um, you're going to presume everyone's going to be sort of fitted with good clubs and their their equipment's going to be paired up and we're going to expect our opponents to be in generally in decent, you know, they're all going to be sort of um, following a sort of workout regimen that's going to improve their game. But to me, Team wins can can come from just teams' culture of really smart decision making, scrutinizing uh, the golf holes, knowing what the wind's going to be doing, declining, being you know declining, sort of less than fair uh, odds on on certain shots, knowing when to attack. That's that to me. That's really fun because it's everyone's playing the same course, um, and I love seeing when teams just sort of I love seeing other teams make some poor decisions out there just sort of shaking my head going I can't yeah, believe yeah. Yeah. But that's <laughs> the thing you can control isn't it I mean it, yeah. it, it is fascinating and I, I don't want to digress too much on this and I definitely don't want to get into a rollback debate but the players you see now and I think some of that plays into some of that USGA RNA rollback stuff 
is we've now got a a, a a generation of players on our hands that have only grown up playing with that mindset of learning around speed, building a swing around um, Pro V1s and, you know, big driver heads and, you know, have had access to all this information about making smarter decisions, strategy and all this sort of stuff. And they are just a different breed of golfer because the guys in 2008, they were... They were probably brought up on a diet of digging it out of the dirt in junior competitions, feel, you know, you know, maybe looking at different concepts that we might think now are a bit more old and, and you know, have had their day. And, and fundamentally, the ball's a bit different so that the game has just moved on. And I think that's where you've now got this sort of delayed fuse of almost that 15 years, which almost perfectly ties up really with your Yale coaching thing. I, I, I want to circle back just briefly on your time at Yale, Colin, as a, as a player. Because I'm I'm right in thinking you're obviously a very high level player in getting into that side in the first place. You know, you weren't you weren't just picked on your good looks. I can assure you. I, I'm joking, of course. But but um, it, you know, was there ever a point in time where you thought, do you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna go full time playing this. I I think I might have heard a good story about this in the past. Maybe I'm teeing you up. Well, no, I it, there are people. Uh, definitely chuckling uh, on the on the side of the Atlantic hearing that I was a good player um so I was uh just good enough to qualify for the, the insurance youth classic national tournament the big eye one of four players to go from Connecticut Piners number seven in 1992 I went with JJ Henry a dear friend of mine from Fairfield Connecticut who's been on the tours a Ryder Cupper and you know won multiple times and uh, the course was the longest course I'd ever seen in my life. I wasn't a particularly good driver of the ball in 1992 with my little tiny tailor-made steel burner head with steel shaft that I probably hit 258 <laughs> yards. And it rained, and I didn't have rain gloves, and I didn't have wet. I didn't have. I didn't have. I don't know if anybody had sort of uh, Gore-Tex, but. And I was thoroughly unprepared for the conditions, the golf course, the competition. And I played well coming in in the rain. I somehow managed to make three birdies and, and had shot 80 and wasn't particularly disappointing with it. It could have been worse. And I remember thinking, I was in the morning wave, and a, uh, a phenom by the name of Eldrick Woods was at the same tournament. My only, like, my lifetime um I only, I only ever head to head against it in terms of being in the same tournament. And I remember thinking, well, let's see what Tiger, let's see what this kid, let's see what this kid everyone's talking about. Let's see how he does out there. Maybe he shoots a 76. Like, I don't know. And of course, he goes out and he shoots a 66. And I remember thinking, <laughs> then and there, I'll never forget it. it was the weekend of the PGA, the 92 PGA Championship, Nick Price won at Bell Reeve that weekend. And I remember right then and there going, oh my God, I'm never going to be a professional golfer. I That was unfathomable. That was light years away from what I what was possible. And so I always joke, I, uh, you know, I, I think I enrolled at Yale with one handicap. And by the time I graduated, I was 13. I had a, a, a strong grip and a two-way miss and, and the Yale court stroke play metal play golf broke me but so it was in spite of all that it was the, it was the, it was the travel with coach and, and hearing his stories and and learning golf history and and the relationships with my teammates i was sort of uh, i was very good at recruiting um 
I, I was very good even then as an undergrad of, of hosting the recruits. And I kind of was, was, I was able to kind of recruit my way out of the starting lineup, <laughs> uh, by helping convince <laughs> the players behind me. So even then I was basically doing it. Uh, <laughs> and then somehow after like a lot of coach, the old coach used to say, everyone got better after college. And I eventually settled into a pretty decent golfer and, I was a legitimate plus one all through my thirties. Um, and without much, without being playing a lot, but not really practicing. And then I made an ill-advised kind of swing change around the time I turned 40 while I, around the same time I had a third daughter around the same time that I sort of, um, started playing less. And I, I like to joke that if, well, if you, if you want to read about my game now, you can just turn to the obituary section of the newspaper. <laughs> so, uh, I am, uh, you know, I've probably broken par and broke shot in the sixties, you know, 10 or 20, you know, 15, 20 times in my life. So I, I, I did play to a high level for a while, but and I nearly qualified for the 2011 West Amateur. It would have been at Aaron Hills and I would have gone there and, easily missed the cut and I would have been easily trunk slamming it at that. But, <laughs> um, so my game, uh, I, I to play with me is though it, it, it's, I, I still love it. Right. I mean, it, I'm no less, uh, no less in love with the game that I can't play while I do. I don't get any of the, uh, joy of being a really good golfer, but situationally I can, I can still get hot here and there. Yeah, exactly. Which is always nice to know. The, yeah. the 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 players you work with, and you know, maybe when you're at you know studying and playing, or whether you're coaching, do you when you're seeing these players really up close at that level, where those are the key moments, those are the key years where they're kind of either going to make it as a player, or they're going to go and pursue a, a professional pastime, whether it's Wall Street or you know medicine or whatever. Can you tell? Can you sort of see it right out? straight away that that person is going to make it or does it still shock you do you still see people and go did not have did not, did not have Zalatoris down to be a world beater or do you know do you know what i mean sure of course i mean that's the interesting thing but um never know the one thing i always think you have to let a kid have until they can have a year or two after college without the sort of rigor of of academics they can move somewhere with sort of and get a year-round get sort of get get sort of a 12-month golf season and you do sort of want to see you do you do wish kids could sort of it's odds are obviously so long but there is something to be said about it a, a player giving themselves sort of a 24 or 36 month kind of runway to 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 see how good they can get and yet if you're going to be cold blooded about it, if you're not, if you're not a first or second team All American in college, you're probably not going to, you know, it's going to be hard to have success. Now, there's obviously exceptions, and and I I think there's nothing more admirable than someone who just wills their way eventually and takes a circuitous route to the tour through sort of hard work and years of sort of grinding and improving. So there's there are multiple paths. There's always going to be those rocket ship candidates. Um, but, and I kind of have learned that um, you can't judge, you can't make a, you can't make assumptions better for worse based on a, on a, on a fundamentally 
perfect swing or a flawed swing. <clears throat> you know, two of the best college golfers I ever saw, one was from um, Old Miss and the other was from Georgia Southern, and both had some of the most idiosyncratic uh, swings I've ever seen. And we were at one tournament where this <clears throat> player was, uh, you know, he had a like, strong grip and he had these low, slappy hooks. Shot eighteen under. He won by twelve strokes. <laughs> yeah. So that is the beautiful thing about our game is the the element of 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 that sort of of someone's ability to score of their sort of of their golfing IQ, their intuition. You know, I had a player from uh, Ascot, uh, Owen Leonard from Surrey. He's Irish. Uh, father was a, worked in London, and they. They were kind of passing his English, but Owen was one of the best players I ever had, and and you know he did not have sort of a a perfect golf swing across the line, and yet the way he flighted the ball, his ability, his short game, his scoring, his his when conditions got worse, he got better. You know, I um I always I always joke, could if I would, I would I would have a I would have a I'd have a ten man roster three from england three from ireland three from scotland and a welsh and a welsh golfer that would be my <laughs> that would be my because you know, to survive in the northeast in, the, in september october and april and play in crap weather when it's ground is especially the spring it's still wet and tender and there's you know you got to be able to persevere the uk golfer treats that as a normal day whereas uh you know, I tease the guys from San Diego who eventually grew up in a, in a biosphere of, of ideal conditions their whole yeah, lives. Yeah. <laughs> but you see it, don't you? And I mean, I hope the Open Championship this year will be a good spectacle. I hope they get some, some tough weather. I mean, going to St. Andrews last year, it was fairly calm. You know, there was nothing really in the weather. And I think you really need that in this country for the courses to come alive, which is... You know, maybe that's slightly different to other parts of the world, but you know, when when the wind blows on the links, there's no better feeling. Um, you, that's kind of a pretty neat segue, I guess, into some of the some of the architecture stuff. So, you know, your your heart almost lies over here with the different, whether it's the ancient links or the quirky nine holers or the heathlands of Surrey. You've taken, I sense a lot of inspiration right before. I can't even remember if we'd hit the record button by then, but you were, you know perhaps envious on behalf of the Americans or what the British golfing culture feels like at times, because, you know, there's a number of things, there's some massive differences, aren't there? What specifically do you mean when you talk about that? And then what are the things that you try and bottle through the developments? Things like a hoopie have been, you know, hugely successful, you know, work at Castle Stewart. You've been involved, I believe in the restoration at Yale, which is a, a, a Seth Rayner course, I believe. And, you know, it was almost to the face enclosure there. There's a whole heap of stuff, and a lot of that's drawing on inspiration from from you know Great Britain and Ireland. What what are the kind of key things that you see, and sort of how do you sort of try and bottle that stuff up? Sure, I could uh, I could list a hundred bullet points, but <laughs> uh, from courses specifically, uh, to me, it's fascinating that. Linksland represents like one-tenth of one percent of the total acreage of the UK and Ireland. I mean, and it comes and goes. And in America, 
that land would be privately owned and it would be off limits. And it seems like in every town, there's just sort of, um, there's a heap of, there's a couple, there's a hundred, a couple hundred acres of sand dunes that somehow became a golf course and that are walking distance on the edge of town. It's to me that's fascinating. You can't take that for granted. And, um, so natural courses on ideal terrain, you're very lucky to have, um, climate that doesn't have humidity that's ideal for sort of fine fescue and and you know courses that don't require a lot of maintenance um sort of you don't have to i love i love this idea that barely you know all these links courses use fairway irrigation as a precaution mm-hmm. you know i'd say the antithesis in america is just parkland golf of lush green heavy clay soil deciduous trees I know that Oak Hill looked awesome and I'm glad they restored it. And I don't want to sound like complete snob, but you know, uh, Parkland golf is for the birds. It bores me. You, did you notice that every single hole is hit the, don't miss the rough. Don't get blocked out by tree, a narrow fairway where there's really, it's hard to really try to too narrow to actually pick a side of the fairway and have any strategies to not hit the rough. And then the same shot into an aerial shot into a into a green. Occasionally, you can chase the ball on when you're at, out of position. Um, you know that's that was something a departure I, from Southern Hills, wasn't it? I, I, everyone was. I mean, I, I've not visited either. But you, what you see from in America, in America with the coverage, was a lot of reverence towards Oak Hill, and yet it felt like quite a big departure from where Southern Hills was last year which I thought set up really well and was really interesting to watch. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, these are great courses, Wingfoot and Medina and, and, and yet they're, they don't, they can't compare to a, a, a windswept seaside course with, with uneven lies and unpredictable bounces and, and a wind that refreshes the challenge day to day, morning to afternoon, in and out with mm-hmm. the tides. Like, you know, you're right. Like, wind that can blow at every on every degree of the dial. Your courses never get old. You could play. I could play a links. I could play any links course over there every day for a hundred days in a row and not get tired of it. I could not say that about Oak Hill. You know, I and I'm not, I don't want to even pile on that. It looks no, no, awesome. No, it's just a recent example. It's recency, yeah. isn't it? But you're right. Um, right. And so, so much in being a good repeat course, you know, there's, there's you know, the, the golf traveler goes and plays places and they want to enjoy it. But we invariably measure anything except your home club on a one-time visit. And you say whether it was good, bad, or indifferent. And yet there's, there's almost n- people never want to measure repeat. And we're a massive victim of that. We've just been on tour and played eight different courses in, in four days or whatever. But yeah. um, you know, sometimes there's something to be said for just playing somewhere 30 times and you see a completely different love for it. Porth Call, I've been lucky to go in there for a long, long period of time. It grows on you so much because it repeats so well, you know? It's it's so, yeah. so nuanced. But yeah, I agree. Inscrutable. The, I'd say, you know, the, the, the secret ingredient of the projects I'm doing is I, I love, I'm, I'm jumping onto the bandwagon of finding sandy sites, tree draining rock properties with undulation, elevation. You can have self-contained lows. They remain playable. 
You know, one thing that's awesome about a hoopy, it's on based, it's on this Kershaw sand that drains 20 inches an hour. You can be staying there overnight, and there can be an overnight rainstorm where it comes down like cats and dogs. And by the time you sort of wake up in the morning and come out of the clubhouse after breakfast, it's as if it never happened. Um, you know, the playability of your free-draining horses. Um you know, in America, when you get into this heavy soils and you build in the southeast and some of those marshy, low country areas, you're you're creating these catch basins with drains at the bottom of them, and and it's a heavy soil. And after it rains, they're soggy, and you know, it's just not this. It's just it's it's not as great as it is in the UK. Um, you know, just uh, the partial hazards of 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 the undulating stances that you get um that that you're just there's there's so it's so much more of an art form to judge to judge all those things an uneven lie ball above your stance one leg's lower it's a it's a diagonal crosswind it's 185 yards you could bling a seven draw you could cut a five you could, you know there's just to me that's just captivating uh it's you can't you, you can't get how can you get tired of that <laughs> yeah, uh, and, yeah. it, and it comes with a big time lunch and uh there's going to be plenty of um you know auger claret and cool afterwards you know i mean <laughs> it, 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 and there's dignity to the to the lunch and and uh, you know among the other things i mean i could from a point of view of culture obviously pace of play the amount of i love the match play component i love your the monthly medals would be something i can't believe we're effectively exclusively monthly medals. Our golf, you know, basically make people count every score which to me is ludicrous from, from so many reasons. But I wish we had, I wish we determined handicaps once a month. The rest of the time was just, you know, playing the regular tees and, and playing matches. I would, I recently said to someone, I wish we cut our maintenance budgets down. I mean, we don't need to maintain everything it doesn't need to be in perfect condition the entire year you lost the script on on treating these things these things you know there's no seasonality to them anymore they're just they're expected to be they're, they're held to a ridiculous standard their, their expectations are unreasonable they're so high aren't they we see yeah. that creeped in here as we see that creep in here as well. But I think, you know, partly because of the quantum of what people are willing to pay, because of the, you know, it is more accessibly accessible at the higher end of golf in this country. Therefore, there's always that expectation that's delivered for a set cost. So therefore, it can never the expect expectation levels can never get out of control. Whereas I sense that you know. And we saw it, I, you know, I think you you always draw influence, don't you, across different sides of the Atlantic. You know, there was that whole period really around, which I think we're coming out of now where you know, we're starting to accept that brown's a good color on a golf course and, and oranges and seeing things a little burnt. But for many years, we were chasing the lush green grass of and, and watering everything intensively and stuff because it was about trying to deliver a product that looked like Augusta National and therefore that expectation feeds in it comes at the right time of the year everyone's excited about the season ahead and they see augusta and they think god you know it remains the most the time of the year where people are most critical of their own golf course because it it doesn't Not look true. like how it looks on tv you know um 
expectations a dangerous thing and you know i think course conditioning is obviously enjoyable i mean who doesn't like playing on quick pure greens and who doesn't like seeing just short turf everywhere that's just man perfectly manicured but you know again you know without laboring it too much you know going and playing the likes of caradale and try and Dunavity, you know it's not about the condition it's about where you are and the adventure and the company and and having these kind of intriguing and thought-provoking layouts, I think that's the, that's the kind of key thing. You, you've you've taken a lot of that into the development. So Castle Stewart was the first project you worked on. You mentioned Mark Parsonen. A couple of weeks ago, we were lucky to be up at Castle Stewart for a few days. They're obviously starting to look at breaking ground on the, on the second site. I mean, Stuart McCollum, as, as does everyone, speaks of Mark with complete and utter reverence. You worked with him closely, a good friend obviously died you know far too far too young um was he an absolute genius you know he would still be developing some of the great courses today right yeah uh, shout out to Stuart mccomb um <clears throat> i love him um mark was mark had one of the great second acts in in golf like he was in his mid 40s he was retired he was successful he had been sort of a consultant he had taken a soft he had, he had sort of uh he had made plenty of money and he, he was extremely smart. Um, he had the sort of a mind of an engineer. Of, he was a played hockey at Penn and he went to Stanford Business. Very analytical mind. Um, dragged his family in his mid 40s to Scotland to, to sort of be the one that made King's Barnes happen. Um, he obsessed about architecture he was on a mission to sort of educate as well he was convinced that there was ways to have a course be challenging for the pros and and playable he was basically building for himself he adored the old course he played it hundreds of times he he walked it every sunday um he loved mckenzie he loved playability he loved width and angles um you know there's his deep his his attention to detail, his humor, his uh, his drive, his motivation—it was all inspiring. It was a joy to be around him. He was hilarious, um, and he knew he was right, and he was. I mean, this guy basically, after it sort of happening, he happened to get involved at Granite Bay at at uh, this golf course in his community in sort of suburban Sacramento. It led to Kings Barnes, and then it led to Castle Stewart. Think about this: an American, California, made two contributions to golf in Scotland: Kings Barnes and Castle Stewart. Um, Quite the CV, his, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, he put his money where his he he risked his own money. He knew that you weren't going to get a triple SI site permitted, or at least not easily. You know, you could look at somehow Macrahenish Dunes made it happen, but you can see obviously what's going on at the cool. And you could see sort of like the flack that's going on out there at, at Trump Aberdeen. He was he saw the opportunity to convert not triple SI grounds into something that looks like by the time it was done that it should have been triple SI that it was Lynx Lab. Mm -hmm. You know he he wasn't opposed. He was not a minimalist. <laughs> he was willing to shape everything under the sun and do a big muck shift. And, the topsoil and mine sand from the site and 
and go all in on it and frame views. I mean, he loved, he was visual golfer. Um, really? He was a, he, he designed for himself. He was a 10 handicap who was not particularly, uh, didn't have a great sort of, he loved to putt from off the green. He loved putting on links courses from valleys of sin and 10, 15 yards off the green. He would often talk about how boring a, a typical third shot is in American golf, where it's the same kind of flop shot around the greens. And he talked about how the third shot at the old course was the most exciting to him. That's where those were always the most compelling shots because he, you yeah. know, playing well, you're always in the green. You got a birdie pup, but when you're like him, you're, you know, he loved, he loved trying to solve the problem of a really complicated up and over and using, using kind of contours successfully and, the choices that came when you could. Um, he loved UK golf. He was a humble. He was humble in spite of. Um, he, I, you know, I, uh, I, I miss him. I loved him. He was, uh, he was a force of nature. <laughs> That's the only way to put it. But that must have left an impression then. So then, you know, how is it? How heavily are you then now involved in these developments? Because. You know, if we take perhaps like a hoopy as an example, I mean, that stuff with Mark will have left a last, lasting impression, you know, either consciously or subconsciously. But then your role in these developments and, you know, I get the sense that you're, you're almost sort of cultivating things that are slightly different to the accepted norm of, you know, private country club, 18 holes, halfway house. There's, you know, it's trying to do things in a slightly different way, which is, which is, should be good, but it must also be hard to tear up the rule book completely. So, you know, how are you going about these things? You know, what's your role on the projects? You know, I, I guess just tell me a little bit more about, you know, yeah. maybe through the lens of a hoopy as a, as a case study, really. Well, um, right. So, right. I, I, like I said earlier, it was a, the Yale opportunity couldn't have come at a better time. It was like a lifeline in 2008. There weren't going to be golf development projects, but um, still, even immediately, even while I was being hired, I was trying to get a with my friends Will Smith and Quentin Lutz. We the original version of the Outpost Club was to we were looking in the Lake Districts of the Sand Hills to do a destination club for 20 and 30 something members, um, do a real bare bones kind of you know, dormitory style um, lodging and long tables like Prestwick where it would be family style and a cookout. And and so that, as much as I love coaching and I, like I said, it was best part of it, like a narcotic. I, my, I, my real passion uh, is in golf development. That's why I was an intern for Mark. I was essentially an apprentice at the age of 30. Um, and so I've always wanted to do projects. Um, I made a decision. And I remember thinking, you know, there was a time where originally I was going to pursue architecture. And I saw that I saw this, I saw the lifestyle. I saw the travel associated with it. I saw the never ending kind of, um, you know, uh, time spent with your in, you know, living out of your suitcase. And, and I love living in New York and, and, eventually met my wife and started to have a family. And I, I saw what, what Mark was doing. I liked this idea of being, instead of being a, an actor or a director in a film, being sort of being the producer, helping taking a longer arc on these projects where mm. instead of coming in and maybe just doing 
going jumping from one to the next you you know really curate them and and so i in 2015 things were finally good enough in america year uh six or seven of the obama recovery that you could that you could daydream about a destination private club in a rural area and i originally visited the ahupi site in the spring of 09 when it was going to be called victory lane and Bill Hans was going to co-design a course with Davis Love the Third, and the project was going to have a Formula One racetrack. If you can, you could still see it's rough, still see it on Google Earth. And there was going to be condos and an equestrian center, and it was going to be a sporting club, and the golf was going to be a small element of it. Um, and it wasn't going to be front and center, and it would have been fine, uh, but that project kind of collapsed as they all would have in 0809 and. It just was clearly not the time to do something like that. And then six years later, I had never forgotten how pretty the site was, these live oaks and just bed of sand, um, forested sand dune. I mean, think about that. Like basically like elements of Ormby. And uh Looked into the site, found out how it, was, it had been sold on the courthouse steps to a, an onion farmer, a Vidalia onion farmer. This is the area of this this region of Georgia's where sweet onions come from. Right, okay. And hence the logo, right? Yeah. And I spent a year putting together a deck and uh, assembled all the role players and teed up the sort of you know teed up the um the, you know the environmental consultants and the civil engineers and and I was going to go out and. It was in this second version was just to be just a straight Gale Hans golf course with cabins, um, you know, no condos or Formula One racetrack. And, and in this January of 2016, I'm going to go out and try to raise, trying to raise $18 million or, you know, as a start and get 18, 18 founders at a million dollars each. And let's, let's get going on this. And, but I needed the first guy in and, not that people thought I was crazy, but it wasn't exactly like, you know, a Gilhans course in rural Georgia in 2016 was something people kind of looked at you sideways. Um, fortunately, I checked in with Leslie Ray, the, the woman, the membership salesperson at Emerald Dunes. I sort of said, you know, Leslie, do you, do you have any members who have like hit their head and want to do a, a Gilhans course in rural Georgia? But would behold, she's like, you mean, you mean you get in touch with Mike Walrath? Like he's trying to do a Gil Hans course in Southern Georgia, down where the he's looking to do a course with Gil, possibly in Georgia. You know, looking potentially at land near the sort of quail plantations of in in South Georgia near Albany, and they looked at stuff on Long Island, and it's inevitable they would have looked into this project. But it was was pretty exciting. Was um, I got in touch with Mike, and we spoke for a couple hours, and that night he sent me like a long, you know, sort of. 4,000 word email and then we spoke for a couple hours the next day and I, you know I sent him sent him my materials within a few days we were on his plane flying to, the, to visit the site the end of January of 2016 and within 22 months of that first site visit he had 22 holes you know shape seated and growing in wow um fascinating you know elapsed time there he um to his credit, to his eternal credit, I mean, he just, he, he saw it, he loved it. And that first call, he kind of, I mentioned, you know, we're going to try to get a bunch of guys and kind of, you know, kind of uh, accidentally intimated that he might be willing to do it himself or take the lead on it. 
and uh, he's a fascinating, you know, like Mark Parson, you know, a fascinating individual, super smart and passionate, and what he's done there is incredible. Um, it's it struck a nerve um, <clears throat> being, with all due respect to other places in the southeast, I don't know if there's any place in the southeast I'd rather play my winter golf than a hoopie. Um, it's it's southeast American Heathland forested it's forested it's it's in a conversation i'm talking texture and ground with pinehurst mm. pine valley um sunningdale the Berkshire, swinley um you know it's got decent movement it's thirty thousand year old sand dunes these riverine sand dunes that sort of come and go um there's otherwise you know the region otherwise there's a lot of heavy soil and and there's yet these just aberrations, these pockets of sand. Um, you know, the seamless, the Hoopy Dunes run for 22 miles, but they're never more than three quarters of a mile wide. So you can imagine this thin snake of sand dunes. And so Hoopy's in the thick of it. And yet when you're on the highway driving from Boston, uh, from Atlanta to Savannah and you're on I-16 and you're driving so at 60 miles an hour, when you cross the, when you cross the Hoopy River, if, you, if you're paying attention for about 45 seconds, the complexion of the soil quickly changes and it's entirely different. And then 40, you know, within a minute, it's back to back to the sort of heavy clay. And so it's similar in the sense of the way Lynxland just briefly comes and goes. Yeah. And then if you if you track the coastline of the UK and Ireland, you might go 20 miles of just rocky headlands and then briefly there's a, a sort of just a massive deposit of sand and then you know it might be another five miles of just sort of 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 headlands again and you know, they it, it it's it really is very situational when it happens which makes things like saint patrick so glorious when you get just like a triple extra large uh you know yeah. portion of sand dunes at once but so hoopy's been really fun i mean it had the match play component might give gil the chance that element of it gave Gil a chance to take risk. It wasn't trying to be a, a sort of stroke play golf course. Um, he was able to dial in some quirk. It's extremely walkable. The, uh, it's got a great caddy culture. It brings people a lot of joy. I'll tell you one thing you can appreciate is you're there in January or December or January, and it's a there's a, a frost delay. Um, this, it. The temperature really heats up quickly in the sand, and even if it's fifty degrees, if you're walking with a jumper on and the sun is out, and you're sort of walk through the sort of sandy ways from the tees to the greens, that they act as a heat sink, and the, the temperature really heats up and it becomes eminently playable. And the reason why I want to take you there in the winter, the they don't overseed in the dormant Bermuda. The place plays like a lynx, just fast and, and fiery, and just yeah, bull just I mean, chases away. Absolutely, the fairways turn yellow. You know, have you ever played in the? You ever played Bermuda grass in the winter when it's dormant, and you kind of put your nine iron down in the fairway, and it, and it just slides. <laughs> because, like, it's like frictionless. Um, so uh, that was a that place is a that place is is brings a lot of people happiness. Um, I love going there, and it led to sort of other opportunities um the couple projects i have going now um during covid during the covid shutdowns i i helped it was a joy to help zach blair 
with the tree farm project. Um, he always said Hoopy was was sort of of all the places he traveled in in his travels, just in his due diligence for the tree farm. That that was the closest to what he had had in his mind of what he wanted to do. So I enjoyed helping him there when 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 COVID shut everything down and there was no athletics in the fall of twenty twenty and the spring of twenty one. I barely saw my players. It was a pretty depressing time for everybody patiently waiting for our vaccine. I don't have to tell Britons about that time and 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 you know, just just my my kids were you no know, like all kids that age, just COVID was the lockdowns and the education were not being helpful. Uh, the one saving grace was working with Zach on on the tree farm, and I loved writing the deck with him. I always said you can't can't do it until you write it down first. And, um, I really enjoyed putting that together with him. It was like a again, it was like another lifeline. Um, it, was, it, it was wonderful, and then that spring of twenty one, um, a senior at Bucknell, Blaze, this nice kid, Texas. He introduced me to a listing for a 7,000-acre hunting ranch in Texas, Texas Panhandle. All sand dunes. I mean, it looks like it looks like something out of the west of Ireland. And I thought Texas was bereft of any good ground for golf, and it had just bad soils, and generally the case. But somehow, up here in the Panhandle, on the Prairie Dog, Town Fork, Red River, at the headwaters of the Red River... Um, at 1,900 feet were a series of deposits of sand dunes. And that first listing led to more research that led to us going to this place called Rocking Chair Ranch where the 81-year-old um, rancher, Howard Head, couldn't believe it when we approached him that we were interested in coming to see his land because we essentially spied on his property using you know, satellite technology using... <laughs> You can imagine, to his credit, he didn't say no, and he graciously showed us his land, and it led to a series of visits and a, and a, uh, a slow courtship to where he grudgingly sold us 1,600 acres of his 15,000-acre cattle ranch wow. on the north. 1,600 where... acres is huge as well. It is. <laughs> it's huge. It is. Um, it has ravines, and uh, that led to a similar kind of process um of of research and due diligence and putting together excuse me putting together um uh a deck and and trying to trying to find someone interested which is what happened in january of 22 uh so that's fascinating that that project's greenlit it's called children's hall and tom doke's going to start in november december He's going to set records for the least amount of soil move. It's basically like the apotheosis of his minimalist uh, career. He's basically going to like slice the seventeenth green to create a little, a little uh, postage stamp par three. He's going to there's going to be a little bit of fill in the fifteenth green in a few tiny other edits, and there's virtually going to be no shaping tees and fairways. It's unbelievable. And then immediately to the next to it, which will which has been greenlit and will start one year later, is Gil Hans's routing in the chop. 
And the two courses are going to have complementary. In, in spite of the fact that they're side by side, they are going to be, they are going to be, they're going to be different. They're going to be different, like, like Dunluce and Valley or Old and New at Sunningdale. Or mm. Trying to think of, but no, but people, um, sometimes they're too similar, aren't they? And then it just becomes an exercise in, oh, which do you prefer? You prefer the A, you know, A or the B or the Old right. and the New? And it's like, you know, uh, you. Yeah, you look at some of the, the great old courses. I mean, St. George's Hill now just has the the green nine. But, you know, that used to be an 18-hole, you know, essentially a sort of a, a quote-unquote ladies 18-hole short course that would be there. And I think it's right that, you know, two course developments, they should have different flavors, you know, that you wouldn't... Yeah, well, it's right. Sometimes the, the land doesn't sort of allow such a thing. You have to make stylistic choices, like you're going to make it... Wingfoot East will be the easier course or be mm. the take more risk or one will be more of of the sort of in the fold of a championship course so that project <clears throat> i don't want to i'll let the courses eventually <clears throat> speak for themselves but there are the, the terrain is exquisite the ground the views are incredible um the sand dunes the sand has a it, it is a fine sand it's easily windblown uh, it does have a red complexion to it, which is pretty cool. Yeah, nice. It has a iron component, but it has all the same prairie grasses. It's got fescues and blue stem and got gorgeous uh, flora, you know, yucca plants that and prickly pear that are going to flower. Um, you know, real desert-like conditions. It's windy. It's at 1,900 feet. You're going to play through the winter. It's going to be like rye out there. I mean, it's going to be <laughs> awesome. Uh, and right now, yeah, right now there's two courses staked in sand dunes side by side. Uh, that project is is uh, high flying. And then uh, I've always been fascinated by the Lake Whale Sand Ridge. Um, in the middle of Florida, running like a spine through the center of Florida is a 100 mile long sand dune called a, called the Lake Whale Sand Ridge that was essentially is a, a little. Millions of years ago, when all of Florida was underwater, there was just this like archipelago of, of little sandy islands that that were that stuck out, and they have this beach sand that's extremely soft. It's like sand that you're sinking sinking to your ankles. Um, it's going to have to be amended for bunkers and things. But um, I went and did some. I've it's not far from Stream Song, but there's a there's a famous soul course in America called Mountain Lake. It's a Seth Rayner course. I've always loved it. I was always fascinated by the name Mountain Lake in Florida when the latest flat houses how do they dare call themselves that? And yet here you go. There's there's the high point of 340 feet above sea level near it, Bach Tower. So I I never gave up on an idea of it in course in the interior or in the Lake Wales Ridge. And I reached out to a broker and found a listing a couple of years ago and then it wasn't quite right, and on that same day, I just started uh, driving around Venus, Florida, and was able to sort of identify this diagonal ridge with 50 feet of fall that tapered its way diagonally northeast through these citrus groves. And uh, I've got, we helped with the broker's help, uh, was able to, I was able last summer to find a guy out of Charlotte, a terrific guy who wanted to take the lead on, on this project called high grow. And it'll, it'll be like hooping the sense of it'll be, it'll have a gill hands course in sand with tasteful rustic cabins, a, a 
um, a tasteful clubhouse, a walking culture, um, no homes, no real estate component to it. Um, it's And it's fascinating because it's in the middle of the state. It's 90 minutes from Naples, Florida on the Gulf side, and it's 90 minutes from, Jup- from Jupiter, Florida. Oh, no way, right. Okay. On the east side. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, we have 1,200 acres of citrus groves that are on these ancient sand dunes that rise in elevation from 105 feet uh, to 175 feet. And that would roll with a big, huge ridge working its way through it. So that natural, those natural features for Florida are like the, like Nepal. I mean, <laughs> uh, those are significant. Those are significant for a state where the majority of the new course projects are essentially like dredge, cut and fill, create ponds, take the, take the material from the dredging of the pond, the creation of the pond to build features and that's cool there's going to be really good courses done that way and you know both courses at macarthur and and name them but they're not and they're going to work out fine but those are almost basically done like as like computer projects or uh you know they're almost like video games whereas there's nothing reactive mm-hmm. there gets you get to be a creator in a sense it is pretty cool um but you know in this case uh, it's going to be a true lay of the land property. And, and you know, and the, the, the fun thing about these types of places where you've got a private club and, and even though you're sort of the ambition is to get a high ranking sort of not because you need it because project deserves it, uh, because the golf is great. You get to take risks and you do have occasional blind shot. And, uh, I hope, I'm, I'm hell bent on having blind shots in America. You know, the Yale course has multiple bell holes. Um, I don't, you know, I, and it annoys me, this lame conventional wisdom that you can't have blind shots when people, it hasn't held Royal County down back from. No, from, no, no, no. That's still regarded as a reasonably good golf course. And there's plenty of blind yeah. shots there, aren't there? You know, it's. Right. And they're unfair, and but they are equally unfair. It's one of the wisest things I think I've ever heard Eric Anders Lang say is that this concept that blind shots are unfair, but because everyone has to play them, they're equally unfair. And it's, you know, we don't mind kinks in the fairway and crazy movement in the land, which is also as abstract and whatever. And there's never anything more exciting than a punch bowl green, you know, the walking Absolutely. to the top and not knowing where on earth the ball is and seeing it roll five feet and probably thinking got that one a bit out of the bottom groove actually that's just done very well on the floor i think you know i think I'm with you there's nothing like hitting what you think is a really good shot and then sort of replacing your divot and grabbing your bag and kind of hmm. uh, quickly walking to the crest or the, you know, the crown of whatever line feature you carried and seeing your ball sort of where you sort of six feet from the one you it's uh, a byproduct, and, but it's a byproduct of writing the score pace. down, isn't it? It's like the by the, the the by it's a byproduct of the fact that we're trying to measure our score. If we don't, if we right. liberate ourselves from what we scored in total across eighteen holes of golf, then it's okay. If you're playing with a guy in a match and you're both playing to a blind green, then you're on the same footing because you're not measuring yourself against par, and that's why that's why the you know holes like rye, you know. You know you look at yeah. the you look at the thirteenth at Rye with its second shot in there. It's almost impossible to know where to aim if it's the first time you've played the course. But if you're playing in a match, it. it's just it's a great sense of drama. I've seen the I've deck for Highgrove. Go on, sorry, you go. No, I'm always rereading 
uh, Scotland's gift by McDonald who was looking for good quotes to include in the sort of the rules, the notice to competitors in the McDonald Cup are the Yale Fall Invitational. And I just love, to me, it can, the British game, McDonald exudes the British game. And one thing that I love is his quote, that there's no eternal justice this game, as in life. You take the bitter with the sweet, you know? You don't to me I feel like I I am in a crusade against this concept of fairness that that golf is meant to be fair that there should be you know, there should be a proportional punishment you know handed out like I'm sorry like you might get up against the face of a bunker and have to hit outside of it it's not unfair if you can play out from it mm-hmm. um you know this this idea of fairness it has spoiled the game um it should be arbitrary. You should, you know, like Bobby Jones, your good shots get bad breaks and your bad shots get yeah. good breaks. And in the end, it, it all evens out in the course of a match. You know, that's just that's just how it goes. And it's how you respond to it. And if you relish it, I, I, I want my golf spicy. I want it to be exciting. I want unexpected surprises. I want blindness, unfairness, penalty. I want... Real hazards for yeah. You want the roller coaster of emotions. You want to go through the mill, don't you? You want to be disappointed because you've hit a great shot. And you're completely short-sighted, and it's just not fair. You want that, you know. You might not feel like it at the time. I've seen the deck for Highgrove, and I, I you kindly sent it on to me. I was fascinated by the stuff that's included in there postcard images etc obviously the architecture is a huge part but there's so much of this is about what's happening off the course now i've always said and our listeners will get bored of this but for me there's never anything more exciting than getting out of the car at a car park of a golf course that i've never played before because it's always different and everything has a different sort of sense and there's different ineffable qualities in the air and i i kind of sense that curating that gives you as much joy as probably the golf itself you're an obsessive around golf club clubhouses, I believe, and you know buildings, yes. and and I, and I think it's a it's a fine art that we massively overlook because you can have huge buildings, you can have huge cavernous clubhouses, you know, and you can have tiny intimate ones. And I, I have a personal preference. I mean, our home club Blackwell has a ridiculously small clubhouse. You know, the Spike Bar has seating for about twelve people. There is the that is the only room you spend time in. But when there's 60 people up there on a Saturday morning and it's heaving, you get no better atmosphere. And I think clubhouses are just so important in terms of the the general vibe and the the feeling of the club. Um, and I just think it's quite an interesting science. I suppose I'm just curious to get your take on it in general. I'm sure yes, this would be another um, thing that you could go into unbelievable detail on. Yes, I will. I will uh, yes, you're so... I saw all these projects and you're, you want to get the golf right, right? So you, that's first and foremost. But I don't think enough people put as much thought as they should or could into completing the project. And that's your built environment, your layout, your land plan. One of the very first things, within the first five minutes of talking to Mike Walrath about, about it, Hoopy, I did say, you know, whatever you do, let's make sure clubhouse is engaged with the golf course like let's have it be adjacent to the first tee and the 18th green and let's let's have a big huge porch and a covered porch and 
let's get that let's get that component right because not enough i don't think people put necessarily put as much thought into it as they could or i see why during development you set back the clubhouse because you know the structure of the clubhouse has its own setbacks and like golf course has its setbacks instead of sort of the two having a sort of uh, having them be a conflict i see why it's just easy to just elect to create a buffer and there's all these modern courses and they're in the clubhouse is nowhere near the first tee or the ninth green or the 10th tee or the 18th green um and that's a missed opportunity um i'm definitely in arch- I'm, I'm in a clubhouse architecture because i i think i see i you know prize was get it wrong and there's and we're guilty of 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 retreating to the interior and to its it's it's the climate controlled comforts of air conditioning 78 inch td on the wall and you've you're you've lost the chance to be on the porch i'm a i'm a i'm a non-resident member of marion i'm a, you know places i absolutely love and they're famous for the proximity of the mm. of the terrace to the first tee it's about four paces yeah, and when you ramsey Oops. talks about the cutlery jingling when you're on your on yes. the first tee and that creating a special feeling you know fascinating it's fascinating you know and i love how the 18th green you can chase the ball through the 18th green at litham and st anne's and have it you know finish stone you know finish stymie to the edge of the clubhouse <laughs> um so to me you you, you the project I see the whole the holistic approach to the project. You don't let the clubhouse, the built environment, and its architecture be an afterthought. Don't don't make any be as thoughtful about that. No clubhouse and the built environment should complement the golf. Which should be, you know, to me, there's almost like you rank a course on a ten point scale. I don't, you know, but I think it's more like and the clubhouse built mm-hmm. environment on a 10 point scale and then the sort of culture and vibe and like to me i'm always these projects i'm in the eternal pursuit of a of a of a, of a project that sort of racks up 30 points and where, where there's no demerits um where everything was thought through the unintended consequences were anticipated where where there's no eyesores and sight lines and there's you know it can be done. This is this is what I take away from Mark Parson and is an obsessive kind of uh, concept of of truly getting it right, Contr- trying to really and not as in, in his he loved to frame stuff more. And I'm I'm definitely um, I have different opinions about certain things, but it, the idea is that um, do everything you can to con- in the best way possible to con to to make the experience to control the experience that it's to have the golfers do what you intended for them to do which is to enjoy your course and mm. and naturally come off the last green to the and have and have it have the logistics of everything be really well thought out um because you only improve the project it only makes it more exciting <laughs> you know i i joke the difference between a hoopie and seminole seminole you have to flee the property at 545 because everyone captains of industry have to flee the grounds no one's allowed on at seminal at six o'clock Is that right? like oh yeah it's a it's a it's an it's, a, it's an ancient rule that goes back to when half of the club used to then go and um you know kind of cater and work at the the members houses for for serve cocktails and big drinks and serve dinner at their houses no way why 
and it'll hoop you at 5.45 or 6 o'clock when you're coming in after your second 18 of the day. You're sitting down to a, a rock, you know, to an honor Adirondack chair on the clubhouse porch around the fire with, with your group or your two groups, the eight of you, and the day only gets better. <laughs> you're going to have drink, you know, sit around the fire for an hour and a half, go shower, go ring the, the dinner bell at 7.30, and then a sort of group-orientated family-style dinner at 7.30, and then back out onto the patio after dinner till till midnight, and then a short walk back to your cabin, uh, you know, 100 yards or some, or in some cases in the basement, the borough. I mean, that, and then having the, having sort of 32 or 36 or 40 golfers on site and everyone kind of mingling and hanging out together, that's that's an experience you can't get. Yeah, it um, makes it so much better, doesn't it? I mean, the guys that... It does. It, guys from Black play, everyone everyone can play as, as, as many holes as they wish. Mm. And, um, you know, there's nothing else. There's nowhere else you'd rather be. You're never, from the moment you arrive to when you leave, you're never, you're never in a cart. You're not shuttled anywhere. You don't have to... Everything is... The campus is all within a sort of five-acre area. The... the, the the range tee, the range barn, the putting green, the clubhouse, the cabins. There's something there's something really great about that. Um, that's and and so getting that right is is completing is 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 a critical second half of, of the project. And um, so I do have a bias towards smaller clubhouses. I'm a big wraparound porch guy. I love <laughs> uh, covered and uncovered areas really try to induce people to be outside try to i'm really into this concept of the first tee and the 18th green creating an element of feeder for people as they watching approach shots or tee shots um an opportunity for people to sort of um you know follow the group in and and and, and shout to them and see where the match stands um that's an that's something that is just to me an essential component. Um, I'm definitely arguing. Another project I'm involved in. In this case, I didn't find the land. I was I was brought in to advise, but you'll definitely this will resonate with your audience. Um, Michael Arigetti, this Yale guy, he's, um, he's in New York. He's he's got a project in se- Southern Georgia called Fall Line. And it's on the same scene of sand that's the fall line sand dunes, which is the ancient seashell from 65 million years ago from the Cretaceous period. The T-Rex roamed the earth. There's a seam of sand that runs through the American Southeast from Columbus, Georgia, through Macon, through Augusta, Georgia, through Columbia, South Carolina, and all the way up into North Carolina and includes Pinehurst. Wow. And it, everything, everything underneath it was... Um, was once underwater, and this was the ancient beachhead. And Pinehurst and and Tree Farm are part of it. And this fall line project these are upland sand dunes, fascinating outward looking views. And they've hired um, it's a thirty six hole project with Ogilvy, Cocking, and Mead. And the west wow. course there, which will be the longer, more championship course, is going to be done stylistically like a Mel- like a Melbourne sand belt they're like they are the, they are sort of experts in the Melbourne yeah, yeah, sand yeah. belts and, and then the east course there is going to be is going to is going to 
stylistically is going to emulate the, the London Heathlands. And so it's going to be more of like Bolton Park and and uh, Simpson Abercrombie, and it's going to have kind of like cops and and the bunkers are going to, they're going to have sort of native vegetation on the brows, whereas the West Course will have that gorgeous flash sand that's going yeah, to cuts into, into the bunker. Into the yeah, yeah, yeah. So the two courses are going to be fascinating. Um, that's a fascinating, you know, that's a great project. It'll, um, they're very talented. Uh, you know, Ashley, Mike Hawking and Ashley Mead are, you know, it's not close to home for them, but there's, you know, they're, it's a terrific routing. And, and when you do like Baltus Roll and Wingfoot, when you do these 36 old projects with the same architect planned at once, you can really kind of have the two courses mingle or cope mingle. Mm-hmm. So the East and the West will have all, there's, there's going to be sort of areas where the, two courses are kind of crossing over each other in a cool way. They're not, you know, the, the bulk of them will be East and West, but there's going to be parts where you can kind of like, um, you know, they, they, they mix together. It'd be pretty cool. Fascinating. Yeah, awesome. awesome. There's, there's going to be, um, you fit all this in Colin. I'll, I'll be honest. I mean, you must not <laughs> sleep. I mean, you're coaching well, until two days ago, you're coaching a tier one side of players. <laughs> you seem to be running about a dozen <laughs> golf developments. Like I just, I and you've got golf on the brain twenty four seven. I mean, I just don't know how you do it as a parting gift. Like, if I was to push I you do. on a few clubhouses that that really stick in the mind, a few that the, sort of, the, um, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Go on. If you could pick a few oh. that really stick in your mind, what would they be? So I know it's interesting. Like uh, Shinnecock is obviously a famous clubhouse. It's iconic. It's Sanford White. The irony is, if you look at the the slideshow I created, um, it would. It's just a garden variety clubhouse from that era, and, and it's famous because it's out of famous championship links, and it's also famous because it survived and didn't burn. Um, I should tell you your so. Um, I once tried to. I was in. I, I tried to make a. I tried to make a, a move, an unsolicited move on a golf course in Illinois, that was owned by the Elks, Langford Moreau course, nineteen twenty six, and it's a gorgeous old course, an hour and a half from Chicago, that had a dreadful clubhouse that was built in the nineteen sixties that looks like you know something like classic Soviet, you know cold. Or something right out of Stalingrad, Stucco and and, yeah. and I, I, I wanted to find examples of historic vintage sort of wood framed clubhouses with a heavy, you know, um, accent on porches on these covered areas. I wound up finding on eBay. Google searches for images turned up these eBay listings of postcards, and you could just kind of you could nick them from the listing and add them to a slideshow. And I think I had a slideshow. I got carried away in like the summer of 19. I probably had 140 images in the slides. It's just, I didn't, I, I didn't touch it, but it was. And then in March of 2020, uh, right as, as COVID shut everything down and I was recalled from Florida with the team and my kids were at the beginning of a two week spring break for their school. 
And like everyone, we were at the sort of early days of just of a of a new reality. Um, every night after my daughters finally went to bed, for some reasons that are beyond me, I started building. I would go to my computer, and each night I would I would start finding more images of clubhouses, and each night I would add twenty five to fifteen new images to the slideshow. And every time I found one, every time I found a beautiful image, it, it sparked joy. It, it, you know, it, uh, it was like an antidepressant. And within a few months, I think there was a thousand images and I've since, <laughs> since added to it another 500. Where does this sit? This should be, this should have public access now. This should be. It is. I should, I'll send it to you to post. And, and what it is, is it, it is the most comprehensive list of precedents of historic clubhouses and golf hotels imaginable that anyone myself included but any new projects any club thinking of renovating its clubhouse or tearing it down or replacing it or a new project thinking of building new one here is your <clears throat> comprehensive list of every conceivable type of a clubhouse so don't say you didn't um don't say you didn't have access you know uh you have no excuse for building a bad modern clubhouse these days if you've at least at a minimum you should draw inspiration from it um and so it, it's a bit of a useful tool i do love sharing it i do love going through it and then anytime a different project comes up i kind of know where they are i can find precedents from it in which to uh share and down you know to download and share specific to a certain project or at a minimum if you're going to do a deep dive and you're going to I can quickly find all all the historic clubhouses from Texas that at least in some context of what you're doing. Um, and I love it. <laughs> so, uh, and it tells a story. It tells a story that um, until the modernists, until Le Coup Day, uh, in 1930, I don't know if there was... Uh, an ugly building in the United States of America. Everything just followed the classic, you know, rules of architectural proportion and of, you know, ever since the Renaissance and the sort of uh, going all the way back to Roman ancient Greece. Like, and now I don't understand why a good new clubhouse is almost, it's almost an exception to the rule. It's almost, it's almost by luck. If I, I just I, to me, it's just depressing how how underwhelming so many modern clubhouses are. They're always covered in glass. They're always right. covered in glass. You know, balustrades. You know, light colored right. wood everywhere. And I, I so they don't like, always. And I that, codes, yeah. And there's and there's and I, I get that there are sort of armies of Italian immigrant artisans to do stonework and and woodwork and i get it but like come on there's shame on anyone who builds a bad clubhouse these days but it's like function isn't it so much so much of it is, is 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 about these things being functional i mean I, I i've obviously so many i've got to send you some pictures of the blackwell clubhouse i need to get you to blackwell i i, I mean i'm desperate to show you blackwell because i think i think you will fall in love with it but you go to a when you visit a lot of clubs you see that you know 
the old clubs where they've done nothing to their clubhouse, it usually perfectly encapsulates their club in some sort of roundabout way, whether it's Church Stretton or Dunbar's a good example. You know, it's it's got curtains that, you know, you you'd put in your nan's house, you know, in, in you know, thirty, forty years ago and they were but it, it's so brilliantly authentic to the club and you you know, I know that's a club that's thinking it might move its clubhouse because they might do some stuff with Orlando and you think, Oh, I really hope they don't do a big you know, glass clubhouse that sits there with all the sort of modern trappings. Like I think, you know, there's like, I, yeah, it it is a shame. Anyone that goes near these things, like you think you can really, you can completely upend the vibe and the culture at that club just by changing the way a clubhouse sits, the way that the people move through the rooms, you know, the, the, the wood Porth call is just an outrageously good clubhouse. Like the, the right. creek, the creek right. of the floor. I mean, you'll know it. I'm guessing you've been there a few times. Yeah. The creak of the floor when you go through those saloon doors, and you know the the locker room, and you can see the waves lapping up. It's it's absolutely the most magical experience ever. And you think God, you can't recreate that. No, you, you can't. can't. You know, you can't. But yeah. you can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. They change stuff. You yeah. know, someone thinks it's a good idea because they want they want to have a you know, more glass so they can see out or they want to have bigger lockers so they can put a trolley bag and you're like, you're missing the point here. You're totally missing the point. Right. right. You're absolutely right. It's hard. It's, it, you know, the back to the island and progress, and, but it's like, you can't you never get it back. Um, I know, I think Walton Heath, I think is thinking about relocating this clubhouse and then they're sort of held to these, you know, these sort of, you know, permitting codes that it, be a carbon neutral building and it'll, it'll be steel and glass and it's, it's almost like they don't even have a choice mm. um you know you're you're limited in your option um to an extent. so i spend as much time obsessing about an old about trying to find a, a site that can yield an old looking course as you as as we can a sort of um looking for precedent in those like you saw in those those postcards for for high growth you know just trying to borrow from the historic press, you know, the sort of vernacular of the area, um, trying to, again, getting people outside, getting them on the porch, getting them overlooked adjacent to the golf. Um, that only improves the joy. It, it makes it more exciting. Um, you don't regret it. If you get it right, it's an asset. It's an, it's an opportunity. It's an opportunity. And if you don't do it, it's a missed opportunity. Colin, I'm mindful I've taken you for nearly two hours. I could go forever, but we won't. Two hours, only two days after sort of semi-retiring from 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 the Yale job, <laughs> and you must have other things that you need to do today. I'm hoping this won't be the last time we get you onto the podcast either, because uh, I can. I think there's I think there's scope in a few more discussions. I would love to get you to do an eclectic eighteen. I think uh, eclectic eighteen could. I think that could keep you up for months on end there, and I don't think you'd get any yeah. sleep. Watch this. 